Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Buying used clothes is far from a new phenomenon. A certain segment of every new generation of teens and 20-somethings invariably gets drawn into spending time combing through the racks at thrift shops. But in the last decade, the emergence of online peer-to-peer fashion resale marketplaces has turned the act of purchasing and selling used clothes into a much more mainstream activity. Even before the pandemic, the growing interest in sustainability and the circular economy had helped increase interest in this brand of grassroots-driven e-commerce. Once COVID-19 began, more and more people forced to stay at home found themselves going through their closets to see what potential merchandise they had to offer. Today, we are excited to be able to speak with the head of one of the leading startups in this space. Max Bittner is a tech entrepreneur and CEO of Vestiaire Collective, a global community-driven platform for pre-owned fashion, which he joined in early 2019. Seven years before that, Bittner founded Lazada, the top online shopping destination in Southeast Asia. In 2016, following Lazada's rapid growth, Alibaba Group purchased a controlling state. By 2018, Bittner stepped down from his CEO position and moved into an advisory role. Earlier in his career, Max Bittner worked in Morgan Stanley's investment banking division in London prior to joining McKinsey and Company in Germany. Max, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about Vestiaire Collective and what it hopes to achieve as a company. Overall, the concept of Vestiaire is that we want to be an inspirational and trusted fashion resale platform that we're really dedicated to change the industry for good by making fashion as sustainable as it is desirable, promoting the circular fashion as the alternative to the industry's wasteful practices. Overall, we are present in about 78 markets, have 10 million members, and we're really the only true global resale platform for premium, pre-loved fashion. As you pointed out, sustainability and the circular economy is a key part of your business model. Tell us about the consumers that are driving the sustainability imperative and therefore driving your growth. How do the fashion-related shopping habits of, say, millennial and Gen Z consumers differ from those of prior generations? Before I go into that, I think it's important to step back. I mean, what is fashion? Fashion is amazing at creating desire to bring dreams into reality. And that's why Vestiaire was founded by people who really love fashion. But let's also face it, fashion fuels some of the world's biggest problems, overconsumption, overproduction, climate change, work ethics, etc. It's really at a point of dramatic change where it needs to adopt because the consumers are expecting it to adopt. And if we're really honest, the, the only truly sustainable piece of clothing out there, if you're not going naked, is probably hanging in your closet already versus buying it. So what we really want to do is encourage people to understand the value of the assets they have hanging in their closet, that they think of a product not just at its original purchasing price, but what is the price after the primary purchase. So it's really around education. At the heart of the circular economy is explaining to people that there's a life after the initial purchase and the best way to make them understand that maybe their trash is someone else's treasure. And do you find that there is a generational difference at all? I don't think there's a generational difference in the way people fundamentally consume. I think there's a difference how fast people adopt new trends. Another instance, which is close to home for me, is the way and the speed at which people adopted mobile phones and the way they use mobile phones for e-commerce shopping. 
in Asia, the app became much more relevant than in Europe or in the US just because there were no alternatives. You had a very hungry population, a young population, which wanted to access the same kind of things that were available in the West. That doesn't mean that people in the West don't use apps. You and me use WhatsApp, you and me use a phone for multiple things. Just for e-commerce, we had very good alternatives. So the actual adoption of something new just takes longer. Fashion resale is not a new industry. This industry has been around for thousands of years. With the app, it's much more gamified. And I think younger people are just faster at adopting new things because they're not necessarily anchored on the way they consume from the past. So I think it's faster adoption, but not necessarily a different mindset. I think when people start engaging with secondhand, they get it. In the end, it's a very simple concept where you get better prices, your behavior is less polluting. So it has a very high feel-good factor. So it comes from the younger adopters, but I think it's spreading very fast. I guess I'm wondering a little bit about the purpose-driven aspect, the sustainability part of things, if you have any belief that that appeals more to younger folks these days. At some point, everyone young goes through this phase, oh my God, we have to save the planet tomorrow. I grew up in Germany. I was born in the late 70s, but I grew up in the 80s. In the 80s, the Green Party started entering government. They closed the highways on Sundays so people wouldn't use their cars. We started collecting different sorts of trash and bring them to school and start separating trash. The young age people, I guess, still have better dreams. Sadly, as people become more hit with the real world and the real problems of feeding their kids and making sure that everyone is healthy, sometimes this planet that we need to save becomes of secondary importance. What is happening right now and why this is so front and center more than it's ever been before is because we're starting to now live through the first real impacts of what it actually means global warming. In the past, it's been very conceptual. And now just look at weather events happening, the almost undeniable evidence that this is tied to global warming. Right now, we have no choice. So that's why I joined this year. That's the bottom line, because when I look back of the massive transformational changes that e-commerce had on the world, and I then had to look for something new, I really just stepped back and I said, okay, what is going to be the most defining thing that will happen to the world over the last 20, 30, 40 years? And ideally, you, you do something which is tied to that trend because things are much easier when you have the wind in your back. The only real massive global trend that I could foresee was global warming. Obviously, after Lazada, you arguably could have gone into any aspect of e-commerce in a CEO position with a different company. And you chose Vestiaire. So it sounds like the sustainability aspect of it was in some ways the real deciding factor. I had no clear plan of whether I wanted to build a new business or whether I wanted to join an existing business. I felt that e-commerce is what I knew and I felt it has a long way to go. So I started looking in that area and the Vestiaire opportunity came to me. I wasn't particularly looking for it. Um, and the moment I engaged with it, I just realized how it could give me, especially after Lazada and the success that Lazada had, an even higher purpose, which is not just about GMV growth and valuations and some of these more prominent things that people obsess about these days. I have three daughters now. I've been incredibly fortunate. So it, I felt it gave me an amazing opportunity to give back, to apply the learnings that I had made over the years to something which is actually bringing good results without having to make a compromise with being ambitious and doing good. And I think quite often people are faced with this choice between doing good for themselves and doing good for the planet. And the beautiful thing about our business model, it is circular. And as a result, when we do well, we also do good for the planet. And was the 
sustainability aspect of it part of the pitch to you in a way? Not really. The investors who reached out to me at the time looked at this very much as a secondhand luxury fashion business. The sustainable aspect clearly has been part of the vision of the business from early days onwards. But I don't think people were at the time yet seeing the opportunity, how big this could be. And I really have to admit, I didn't see it either. I thought it was a wild card five, six years out where anything that helps save the planet is a good business. But the speed at which it now came absolutely surprised me. It's always been part of the vision of the founders, Fanny and Sophie and me talk about this every day because I think it's really at the heart of what we do. It's in our vision, it's in our mission. But it has really crystallized much more over the last years just as, as the topic became so front and center. And obviously the pandemic also helped spur whether it was people just being stuck at home and looking at their closets rather than going out and shopping, thinking about scaling down a little. Yeah, COVID did drive digital adoption. On top of that, people were at home and had to keep busy in many ways, but also many people faced real uncertainty, both health uncertainty, but also financial uncertainty. And this is coming back to this concept that fashion is an asset, not a consumable. If you treat it the right way, if you don't destroy the clothes that you have, or you don't buy really cheap fashion that falls apart after you wear it or wash it three times. So by selling and monetizing their wardrobes, they were able to also alleviate some of their financial concerns on the buying side. Again, yes, the stores were closed, but also you could buy things cheaper and you could still afford the same brand. So you didn't have to make this compromise. So I think we did, as bad as it is, benefit from COVID. Most importantly, I think COVID has resulted a bit in the comeback of science, where doctors and scientists became the primary voice that people started listening again. Once you start listening to how scary COVID has been, and then the potential impact of global warming being exponentially worse, has just given everyone a really rude awakening. Yeah? The booming market in resale fashion, it's obviously crowded. How do you set yourself apart and what do you believe are the most distinctive elements of Vestiaire's business model? Yes, the space is competitive. If you look at the players who are out there today, most of them actually been founded all around the same time. After the last financial crisis, Vestiaire was founded in 2009. Tradesy was founded at the same time, The Real Real also. So most of these players are all now six, seven plus years old. But I think they've now just become much more visible through the positive momentum that the overall space has had. What is happening right now is that people are becoming much more nuanced when they think about resale because there's no one resale model. Have very differentiated offerings which cater to different customer needs. And I really rarely think of them as competitors because if you think about who our competitors are, there's a much bigger pie of people who buy first-hand clothes than competing for the pie of people who buy second-hand clothes. I really look at all of us as jointly educating the market. Now, I joke about it, but I love nothing more than my competitors launching a massive TV campaign because that means I don't need to explain to people how second-hand works. I can then focus on the fact how I'm different. Coming back to your question, how are we different? We really believe in the scale of the marketplace, scale of assortment. We want to make as broad an assortment possible for the items that we believe are perfect for secondhand. And those are more high-end items. But the whole point for secondhand not driving increased consumption because you're able to buy and sell really fast and therefore buy more is actually that you buy less, but you buy higher quality. And as a result, if you want to buy higher quality, you very quickly go to more luxury, high-end fashion, where 
you move away from consumables to a high end. So we really look at this higher end fashion space. There we really want to provide as broad an assortment as possible for people to really be inspired to find things they can't find anymore. This whole concept of Alibaba's cave, a treasure hunt, and then making our model adoptable to make the order economics work for this broad assortment. The order economics for a 10,000 euro Birkin bag are incredibly different to the order economics of a 150 euro Isabel Maron dress, especially if you send it cross-border to one of the 80 markets per customer because you buy from. So I really adopted the model to make it more flexible. We do provide advanced authentication for every item and every customer who wants it, but we've now adopted our business model and said not every customer necessarily values that service of authentication. Um, so we allow them to opt out of this authentication and do what we call direct shipping. The way we really differentiate ourselves to the two biggest buckets of competitors, one being really the asset-heavy, hands-on players who try to control the stock and the authentication as much as possible. On the other end, the very open, relaxed, peer-to-peer players like the Poshmarks, Depops and Vintage of this world, we're kind of putting ourselves a bit in the middle, still with the focus on a higher end basket sizes. We believe customers are not as artificially separated by the business models as these business models might want because very few people only have luxury and very few people only have fashion. If you look at the biggest broad sense of the consumer, they have a lot of day-to-day wear, they have some fast fashion, but they also have these investment pieces. So if you really want to cater to that target customer, you need to be able to offer both services. The biggest differentiator is that we're the only ones who provide this authentication service if you want it, but if you don't want it, you can opt out of it for a certain price point and make it thus work economically for both the customers and for us. The third piece where we really want to differentiate ourselves on is building a a very engaging social commerce experience, which is gamified. This is really the learnings I've had from Asia, from Southeast Asia, working, of course, with Lazada, but then also learning from Alibaba, where e-commerce has just developed slightly different to the US, which is very Amazon dogmatized on how e-commerce should be done. And secondhand is really around discoverability. So gamifying the experience and making it fun and engaging for both buyers and sellers is really the third big pillar. Your point about the mix between high-end luxury versus day-to-day is even more relevant these days when people aren't necessarily at offices all the time. Absolutely. People are going from comfort wear to occasionally them going out to start to enjoy restaurants again and dress up. So that hybrid might be the most relevant it's ever been (laughs) in our society. When you think about fashion as a dynamic industry and consumer behavior and taste can change pretty rapidly, what are the challenges of staying innovative in that kind of environment? And how can technology help in that aspect? The beautiful thing about our business model is that we are a marketplace. So while fashion tastes change incredibly fast, at least I don't have to worry about that. Our sellers are people who buy these products according to what fashions they follow in this particular month or week or year or decade. The main focus for us really is to stay on top of changing consumer expectations with regards to the tech aspect of it. Tech is really our weapon to reduce friction points between buyers and sellers. If you think about a marketplace, a successful marketplace is purely defined by the liquidity it provides to the sellers. It's nothing else. 
if you think about our business, the only thing we need to do, and only is, of course, uh, being massively simplistic, but the only thing we really need to do is to continuously remove any blockers, any points of friction that there are that stop this liquidity. So if you think about technology, I mean, that's all we do. We prioritize ways in which we can reduce friction and make it easier for the seller to sell and the buyer to buy, and ideally for them to meet somewhere in the middle in the most efficient way. I saw that the company is on quite a bit of a hiring spree uh, for tech talent these days. It never stops. This is the beautiful thing that I've learned over the last 10 years. There's a lot of platforms out there, and I was as guilty of this as most. We spend an exorbitant amount of money on marketing and coupons. But in the end, most of that is borrowed time. The best investment is still always investing in just better tech. Almost every decision I make is around the fact, do I spend the marketing dollar today or does it make sense to make the product that little bit better? And very often I convince myself to delay spending more marketing than I should for another two, three months and rather improve the product along the way. And how challenging is it to get the best engineers and data scientists to join a company like yours? Of course, it's very hard, especially now in a post-COVID world. The way that work and the workplace has changed has made the battle for the best engineers even harder. There's many companies now which are offering only work from home, work from anywhere concept. The war for talent is hard as it's always been added with the complexity that you're now hiring a lot of people who've never met each other potentially, which really makes it hard over time to make sure that you keep the culture and the values of the business consistent. What we've really focused on, and I think where we really can differentiate ourselves, is that we're very clear about our mission and our vision. And that vision is really a bigger one. It's not just about being the best company at X, Y, Z, um, but it's really about being a company which addresses the world's biggest problem that we will face for the next century, which is global warming. And we really try to emphasize that this is extremely authentic in the way we do it because it really touches everything that we do. And that message comes across extremely well on the recruiting side. Let's talk about the luxury brands and your business. I think one of your priorities coming into Vestiaire was to build broader and deeper relationships with luxury brands. At least if you believe what you read, a few years ago, much of the luxury industry was said to still view the resale markets with a certain degree of wariness and caution. I'm wondering how these relationships have evolved for your company, given the potential for a value reinforcement and life cycle extension, balanced against concerns about risk of cannibalization. I know you recently got an investment from Caring, which owns several luxury brands like Gucci and Balenciaga. I would think to a certain degree, those relationships have improved. Yeah. The bottom line is there is no secondhand fashion without firsthand fashion. By definition, we can't ignore the existence of brands because if they don't exist, we don't exist. Yeah? I want to understand the brands. I want to understand their needs. I want to see how we can help each other. That's always been core pillar of Vestiaire's, not just mine, but over the last 10 years, as we and some of our brothers and sisters in arms have built these businesses, I think it was not really top of mind for most of these brands. So they didn't really have to think about it. And then over the last three, four years, they've got bigger. By definition, these brands had to face our existence. And like always, I don't think there's a homogenous way that all of these brands have reacted. I've 
really spent the last two years trying to think about, okay, we are here. We're not going to go away. We're not dependent on the brands, but saying I don't give a um, what the brands want or do, I don't think is the right approach either because the brands have something that is absolutely invaluable for me. Yeah, Apart from, of course, the products that they produce in the first hand, knowing what people actually have in their wardrobe. And I always talk about this treasure hunt and this Alibaba's cave, but that Alibaba's cave needs to be populated with all the world's wardrobes. And the best way for me to get an understanding of what lies in these wardrobes is ideally to work together with the brands, work together with the online and offline retailers, so fashion retailers, and to build an understanding of that. The day I almost started, I kind of started reaching out to the brands and I said, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what I'm hoping to learn from you. But then I really focused on the fact, what can I give back to them? And I really, especially on the luxury side, have tried to emphasize the point that we're in no way a threat or are cannibalizing their sales. But if anything, we're educating consumers of the fact that they should buy less and buy better. And by buying less and by buying better, this whole concept of buying assets, not consumables, and almost justifying the high prices that many of these brands Hey, so I've really spent time on saying we're nothing but paying homage to your brands by the fact that you can resell these products after 6, 12, 18 months. So I've really gone out of my way and I've spent the last two years trying to find ways that we can work together. With. The obvious ones are reducing friction points in the marketplace, topics like authentication, topics like how fast you can deposit, how can we make these points as frictionless as possible. And also, of course, encouraging circularity if you sell your old you can buy something new and get incentivized to it. And over the last two years, it's absolutely astounding how fast all these brands have accepted this new reality. From two years ago, where there were real doubts and concerns, to today being incredibly open. I had lunch yesterday with the CEO of one of the biggest brands. And he says he loves it. He said it will take time. It's not something you do overnight because there's many things to do. And if you want to do it, you do it right. But they're all incredibly open to it. The fact is, it's less what the brands want or what I want. It's what the consumers want. And the consumers expect brands to act sustainable and responsible today. Um, if you really start looking at the details, if you really want to act sustainable, it's very hard to not address the second hand. So I think they're coming to this space knowing that there's almost no way around it. But they're also really recognizing it's not a choice between a rock and a hard place but it's actually something which can benefit they're very excited they're still trying to figure out what their place is what our place is there's a value chain there's money to be made and everyone wants to make sure that they get their fair share or more you're already working with certain brands or even retailers to help them launch sort of their own resale offerings with certain customers who can come in and sell something back and then get store credit exactly we have fantastic partnerships with Alexander McQueen, we have great partnership with My Teresa, which is an online e-commerce player, where they encourage their existing customers to sell their old, um, so they buy new. It helps them to increase customer loyalty. It helps us acquire supply. It's a really win-win situation. I've heard the term resale as a service. Exactly. Is that something that you can envision as a growing part of your business? Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk briefly about branding and marketing. You mentioned earlier that in the end, it's technology. 
that is the real key weapon and that the early days of spending so much on marketing and coupons in retrospect not seem as as important for the long term but Branding and marketing are key, I would think, to Vestiaire's success to a certain degree. And I'm just wondering about the particular brand identity you've sought to establish for Vestiaire. It's actually a very timely question. We have actually not spent a lot of money on branding and marketing over the last two years because, like I mentioned before, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've spent a lot of money in Southeast Asia on marketing, way more than I would be proud to admit. Most of it potentially not that efficiently spent. So when I came here, I really wanted to do different. Uh, I really wanted to build you know, great user experience, great customer experience, a really sticky product that works before I started ramping up the marketing. And that worked really well for the last two years. We really focused on what I would call engagement. So daily active users, monthly active users, how often do you make people come back per month, push notifications, how do you use the app? How do you make the app exciting that people come back and open the app every day? Things like make me an offer, which is a negotiation tool or price drops notification. So everything we did also driving traffic was tied around the product. And we spent almost no money on marketing. I had incredibly low customer acquisition rates. And it's actually only about now that we're starting to say, okay, we've been growing really well, but what could we do if we start spending more money on branding? Like you said, you need to make sure that not just how you differentiate yourself to competitors, but also the broader new customer base knows it. So this whole topic about how can we push the brand stronger, how can we be clear on our brand, is actually something we're only really starting to work now. It's really quite inspiring and fascinating to only get to this point now because the business has really been organic. If you think about the last 10 years, especially Fanny and Sophie, so much was built on word of mouth and PR and being part of the bigger ecosystem that only now we're really getting to the place where we're thinking about building a large-scale luxury brand. I can't give you that much to the secret sauce because we're still trying to figure it out, but hopefully in the next three, six months, you'll see what I mean. But do you think that despite the sort of approach you've taken, that Vestir has organically developed a particular brand identity in some ways? Yeah, of course. The brand itself is very clear. People really knows what Vestiaire stands for. And that's largely because the vision and the mission has always been very clear and hasn't really changed. When I came in, I didn't really challenge what was done before because I really believed in that vision and the mission. It was more about bringing my experience on the tech and the product side and on the logistics side to kind of execute that vision better. The brand has really always been built around this incredible community of fashion lovers and the business was really built by people who just love this industry. They've built this business so organically out of the heart of the fashion industry in Paris that the community is the industry. And to that, they've added this whole concept of trust. How can you make this happen, these transactions happen, not just locally, but countrywide, region-wide, worldwide in a trusted way? And they've built this concept around the advanced authentication, which continuously develops as technology gets better. And then sustainability is the last piece that we've emphasized more and more over the last years to make sure that people understand that this is not just about giving access to beautiful fashion to people, but they're also doing it in an incredibly sustainable way. And by doing that, you know, they're doing good. I want to ask you about internationalization, Max. You guys are now a global company with customer reach across 80 countries. Um, how important is product and service localization been to ensure success? in these markets, especially in terms of expanding to Asia and the United States? Um, and what are the primary differences between the two markets? Again, a very timely question. The business is a European business and has been grown 
out of France, then into the UK, then into the rest of Europe. We launched the US probably four or five years ago, Asia about two, three years ago. But when we're talking about Asia, it's really talking so far only about Hong Kong and Singapore and Australia. Um, and when we're talking about the US until one plus year ago, our US business was largely incredibly sophisticated and educated fashion lovers out of the US buying knowledgeably, knowingly from Europe because they got access to stuff they just couldn't get access to in the US. So most of the sales in US happened from European supply. If you think about our opportunities in the US and our opportunity in Asia, I think with Asia, you really need to specify what Asia is because it's not one country, but it's very different geographies. There's, of course, Southeast Asia, which I know, but mainly there's the big markets China, Japan, and Korea. And we're not there yet. And for the US, like I said, we're only really starting to push a local seller base. So you know, for both of these questions, I think I have a view on how we need to go after them. And localization is absolutely key there, probably more so in Asia than it is in the US. The US consumer is very similar, trained and e-commerce savvy because we're using the same platforms that people are used to in the US and in Europe, whether it's Amazon, whether it's eBay. Everything is very similar, while in Asia, you have massive differences. And of course, China is China, and e-commerce has developed in a very different way. But obviously, social media plays a different... Korea is a whole different animal. Even doing marketing there is different because there's no Google. There's You go via Naver and you have Kakao Pay and Kakao Talk. And then Japan, again, is another ecosystem again. So especially when you look at these Asian markets, you absolutely have to localize everything. It's the front end the app, the features that people expect, live chat, video streaming are topics which are extremely important in Asia. It's the payment uh, service that are provided. There's a different expectation on the logistics services. There's a different expectation of what secondhand is. So it's a whole different ballgame. And is authentication a similar issue in all markets or does it differ? No, it is absolutely a different, a different topic. I think there's different level of trust in secondhand, depending on where you are. Our peer-to-peer model that we offer with direct shipping, where consumers can opt out of authentication, I don't think that flies in China. Let's be very honest. I think we need to think about our business offering if and when we go to China in a different way. When talking about sustainability, I'm wondering how important is it for you guys as a company in your own operations. I think you and the founders have targeted a certain date to be completely carbon neutral. We actually achieved B Corp certification just in the last couple of days. Oh, great. Congratulations. So we're super, super proud of that. It's been an incredibly tough process. It's taken more than a year to go through it. It really involved every part of the business. What's I think really important about B Corp is that it's not just the environment, but it's also the social and governance topics. We were faced to be very self-reflective there and starting with me, the way we lead, the way we think about compensation, the way we think about diversity, the way we think about governance, and of course, all the environmental issues. We absolutely hope to encourage many of our peers and other young startups, especially unicorns, and I think we're the first unicorn to have it. It's one thing growing a big business and GMV and growth and unicorn and all that stuff. Yeah, but actually building a business from day one with a real purpose and real social responsibility, I think in this day is required. I really hope to challenge many of my fellow CEOs and founders to go down the same path. We do take it absolutely serious. It's not about greenwashing. I think you can't get away with greenwashing in this day and age anymore. I just have a couple of questions to ask you about your personal journey as an entrepreneur, now a CEO at Vestiaire. 
before we close. What have been a couple of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in the growth journey at Vestier since you came on? Obviously, I came into a new business. I brought in different perspectives. I brought in different people. But I think that's not been as difficult a challenge because I've really worked together with the two founders who are still in the business, Fanny and Sophie. I work incredibly close with them. Sophie sits next door to me. Uh, Fanny lives in Hong Kong, but I speak to her multiple times a day. Most meetings we do together, we're really partners. Yeah. So that cultural challenge has been big, but we managed it really well together. The hardest one has really been COVID. And more importantly, how do you lead a team through COVID? Building an e-commerce business in Southeast Asia 10 years ago, things were really, really hard. And I thought I have really thick skin. I thought I've been through really difficult periods, but I think COVID just topped everything in a different way because it was so psychological. Um, and what I mean with that is it's less that first six to eight weeks when COVID hit, when we were like in firefighting mode and we had to make sure that the business continuity is guaranteed. We need to make sure that the staff is healthy. We needed to suddenly shift from working from home. But that was just kind of war mode. We just went in this hardcore execution mode. The executive team at Vistier, we had three calls per day. We had one at 8, 2 and 10 p.m. every day for more than two months. But where it started getting really difficult was the beginning of this year, actually, this April, May time, when we've been in and out of two, three lockdowns. People still were largely at home and we were still waiting for vaccinations. So it was still much safer to stay at home. And then having these especially younger team members who are many times alone at home, many people who've never actually, they've been hired, but they never actually met anyone to keep them motivated remotely it was incredibly hard. I found it very hard to inject that same energy of being able to just walk over someone at the coffee machine and say, hey, you're doing a great job. Seeing when someone is not in a good mood. When you're in the office, you look across the floor and someone is slumping a bit or they're walking a bit too slow and something's wrong. You can do something, you can intervene. But you just don't see that via a computer screen. Doing all that while at the same time, I was also starting to get tired. I was also starting to have doubts and questions and motivational holes and trying to continuing to drive the company which is starting to really suffer while you're actually suffering yourself was starting to be really difficult all my peers i've spoken to are the same i mean people were tired it was really tough to continue building a startup is tough building a startup in e-commerce is even tougher because e-commerce is just so 24 7. did those experiences you'd had previously weren't on a level with COVID, but in terms of moments of self-doubt or just obstacles feeling overwhelming, whether it was Lazada or any aspect of your time at McKinsey, did those help you in any way? I try to remind myself in these moments, things are never as good as you think they are and things are never as bad as you think they are. When things are really great and you have a great fundraise or whatever, I'm just like, okay, there will be bad days again soon. And when you have really bad days, you just remind yourself there will be good days soon. So you start just becoming a bit more level-headed, which I think is, again, part of experience. If you had to give advice to budding entrepreneurs who had their own moments of self-doubt or certain loneliness of the journey, is that what you would tell them? Just try and be level-headed and not get sucked in by the highs and the lows? Yeah, I think that's a really good one. I think that helps me. There's everyone who needs their own number one advice. I'm someone who's incredibly emotional, so I get really excited and I get really pissed off or sad. So telling myself I need to be level-headed is very tailor-made for me. The number one advice I can give to any founder is that it's going to be relentless. 
you just need to power through. That comes down to working incredibly hard and finding people who can work incredibly hard with you and making sure that what you're working on is really tied around a vision and a mission and that you're really, really clear what that is. Because in these really, really tough and relentless, you need to be very clear why you wake up in the morning and why you're doing it. And it's not about valuation. It's not about growth. In my really mean moments, when I try to encourage my teams, I just remind them about the fact that let's make sure that our kids can walk in forests. So let's work a bit harder. <laughs> it's a bit manipulative. Yeah. I admit it. <laughs> it's not a big ask or anything. But let's not a big ask. Save the planet. <laughs> it's between us and doom. <laughs> Last question. When you think about Vestiaire five to 10 years from now, where do you hope it is as a company? And how would you judge success at that point in time? You kept the best one for the end. Where would I hope to be in five to 10 years? I would hope to be exactly where I am today in regards to what I want the company to do. The vision should still be the same one. And the passion at which we go after that vision is hopefully the same one. Will it be in a different setting? Yes. Will it be at a different size? Hopefully. Will we have some different colleagues? I guess so. But I hope there will be also some still there that are here today and I don't want it to be that different. I love going to work. I love working with colleagues. I love problem solving and trying to just get a bit better every day and just move that a bit closer to what is a never-ending and always moving target. I don't wake up in the morning and think I'm single-handedly saving the planet from doom. In my very nostalgic moments after three bottles of wine, maybe I think that, but <laughs> I don't blow that much smoke up my ass. But it's really about the educational journey. What I've really learned myself is once I started buying and selling secondhand myself. And I'm really a heavy user of Vestiaire. When you go on the app, you go on my profile at Maximilian. That's the stuff I sold over the last year, the 50, 60 items I've sold. Once you start doing that, you just become more educated about what consumption means. You can become more educated of what you can do. And the example I use best is once I started doing that, it became harder and harder for the rest of my life to be unsustainable. I'm German. Germans like their German cars and going too fast on highways and oh, look at the motor and it makes such a great noise and all that stuff. I just can't do that anymore. Like I can't sit there in a petrol car and pretend like this matters. You start changing the rest of your behavior. You start buying an electric car and you start making other decisions differently. So for me, the success would really be that we use Vestiaire driven by what we do on a daily basis, but we really continue to educate consumers of what they can do or how they should behave, help them want to become more educated and not just the consumption retail fashion part of this world, but also in other aspects of their life. Well, that's great. I think I've taken up way more than enough of your time. So I want to thank you again, Max, for joining us today and spending so much time talking about Vestiaire Collective and the business. It'll be interesting to continue to watch as you guys grow and the space and the circular economy for fashion. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And that's our podcast. As always, I want to thank our great McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Snamorowski. And finally, thank you for listening. We hope you'll return for future episodes. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.